If your Bibles, why don't you turn together with me this morning to the book of Philippians chapter 4. If you do need a Bible, the men in the aisles have some copies. They'd be happy to give you a copy of Scripture to follow along with us. While I'm thinking of it quickly, some of you may have actually uh, got the email if you were involved, maybe serving as a, a follow-up counselor or so forth. But in regards to the, the Harvest Crusade that took place uh, just about two weeks or so ago in Philadelphia, um, uh, the email report I got said that they had somewhere, I believe, uh, I, forgive me, I probably should have had the actual statistic, but it was somewhere around 27,500 in that range in attendance over the two nights, and they reported, uh, I believe, somewhere over 2,000 professions of faith as far as those who came forward to make a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you you prayed for that, you participated in that, uh, good to see the fruit of that labor. And as always, I would just encourage you, uh, it's one thing to be born again, to make a commitment to Christ, and it's one thing to come forward It's a whole other thing to then go forward, if you understand what I mean by that. And uh, wonderful to see people hear the gospel and come forward, but as the Lord would bring maybe such individuals to mind, just to pray. They make efforts to try and connect them to local churches and have people reach out to them from the address and information they supply. But just as the Lord leads, just pray that they would be discipled and that they would really uh, take hold of the hand of Jesus and follow Jesus and, and walk forward in that profession of faith that they made to become uh, his follower in their lives. Well, last week we finished up the third chapter in Philippians, and this morning we want to continue on in our study. We'll pick up in chapter 4, right in verse 1, and we'll make our way down as far as the fifth verse. And if you would stand together with me out of honor of God's word as we read our passage of scripture this morning. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Iodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also. And the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. And Father, we humbly ask for the help of your Spirit's ministry to prepare us that you would give to each one of us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church that's assembled together here. Lord, we ask that you would make our hearts that fertile soil, whereas the seed of your word goes into it, it could produce a good and a fruitful crop for your kingdom's purposes and for our spiritual welfare. So Lord, meet us, would you, in your word, speak to us personally and powerfully. We ask your spirit's anointing and blessing upon the word of God that what you wrote it and every intent you had behind it would be what we would hear personally for our hearts and lives this morning. Speak to us, Lord. We believe you want to and will and thank you for it in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. (laughs) 
You know, I think one of the most valuable capacities that we have as human beings is the capability to be able to experience and engage in relationships. And certainly that begins foremost with the wonderful privilege and capacity that God has given to us all to have a relationship with the Lord. First and foremost, that's the vertical. And to have that vertical relationship with the Lord is an incredible capacity that God has given to us to be able to experience in our lives. To know our Creator, to have fellowship with the one who made us and to experience a personal relationship with Him. But then beyond that, as well, God's given us this incredible capability on the horizontal to be able to experience and enjoy and benefit from relationship with one another. And I think we need to remember that God is a God of relationship. In fact, if you just look at the very uh, essence of, of who God is and the way that he reveals himself to us, one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that there's a relational element, if you would, even among the Godhead. God is a God of relationship. Uh, and because of that, you and I, the Bible tells us, have been created in his image and likeness. We've been designed in the image and likeness of God. In the same way God is a God of relationship, God desires relationship with you and I, God seeks after relationship, God engages in relationship, you and I, by design being created in his image and likeness, should be people, by God's design, who esteem relationships who recognize the importance, in fact, I'll go so far as to say the necessity to engage in relationships, beginning with on the vertical, engaging in a relationship with God, but then beyond that, recognizing the necessity as well on the horizontal of engaging and experiencing relationships with other people. And our passage we're going to look at together this morning deals with, I believe, in many ways, the value of relationships. Relationship with God on the vertical, relationship with others on the horizontal. He'll speak about in regards to value of a relationship with the Lord, about being faithful to him there in verse 1. He'll talk about being useful for the Lord, about finding enjoyment and fulfillment in our relationship with the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord and finding our satisfaction and fulfillment there. He'll talk about value of relationships with people. He talks in verse 1 about expressing our worth and appreciation towards one another. You'll see in the same verses that he talks about things like exercising love to work through issues and caring enough about people and relationships to even get involved in other people's lives, to, to help maybe mediate and resolve a conflict where it may arise, and uh, to do things like be a problem solver rather than a problem starter by having a gentle disposition that's, that's reasonable and, and easy in a sense to work with. And remember the background, which I find it very fitting, in chapter 3 that we just moved our way through together, that entire chapter really, if you, you summarize it, is all about Paul expressing from his own heart the incredible discovery that he had made as a man of what it meant to have a personal, intimate relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And this astonished Paul. This was the greatest discovery he ever made because he was a devoutly religious man. He knew rules. He understood ritual. He understood how to dot his I's and cross his T's and everything that was spiritual and go through all the motions of liturgical observances. But Paul never understood the reality 
that God is a relational God and that God loves us and he wants to have an intimate personal connection and an intimate relationship. And when Paul discovered this through discovering what it means to have a relationship with God's son, Jesus Christ, it radically transformed his life. And he spent the whole last chapter in many ways just talking about how he longed to know him and that he hadn't yet apprehended even after 30 years he still wanted to know more and more about the Lord and to press further into that relationship. It sort of culminated in connection with that at the end of chapter 3 verse 20 where Paul then said for our citizenship is in heaven notice again he, he, the focus from which we eagerly wait for the Savior our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, you know, God's transformed our, our personal destiny. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're living in a foreign land on this earth. And he said, our longing now as Christians is wanting to be home, but not just to be home, but to be with the one who our heart is so much attached to. We eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to get us and to bring us home in relationship with him. Now, with that as a backdrop, he then continues into chapter 4, verse 1, saying, therefore, indicating in light of all these things, in light of all these things about relationship with God and so forth, in light of that, he says, therefore, my beloved, verse 1, and my long-for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord Beloved, again, knowing the incredible value of having a relationship with the Lord, Paul charges now these Philippian Christians to remain devoted and to stay committed, not to waver and not to wander away from Jesus. Take notice, that's what his heart is here. And beginning in verse 1, before we see that charge given to them, I want you to take notice with me in the first verse how just as at the start of this letter, back in chapter 1, that once again you see Paul the Apostle expressing what? His love for these Philippian believers. Again, sharing with them the value that they mean to him. We take note in verse 1 of multiple terms and titles he uses to address them. He's being purposely, purposefully redundant to emphasize their incredible value to him. He's being purposely redundant in such a way so that they would clearly grasp how much he really appreciates and has admiration for them and his love for them. Notice two times in verse 1, twice he calls them beloved. He puts the term in there twice at the beginning and end of the verse. The word just means dearly loved. It, it speaks of tender affection. That's what the you know dearly beloved we are gathered here today. We understand what that means. It means tender affection. Those who you really uh, have a sense uh, of great care for. He calls them as well in verse 1, notice, longed for brethren, indicating his heart ached in concern and care for them. He longed for them. It indicates the ideas that because they meant so much to him, he desired to be with them, even though he wasn't currently present in their midst. Thirdly as well, he then calls them, notice, my joy and my crown, he calls them. My, you're my joy and crown. And that word crown there that Paul uses 
is distinctly a specific Greek term. There are two terms in the Greek for the word crown that we find in the English in our Bible. One is the diadem, which speaks of sort of the royal crown that a king or a prince would wear. The other term, translated crown, is the term Stephanos, which is the victor's crown. It was the wreath that they would weave together and put on the head of someone after their victory as they competed in the races and the games or maybe in a wrestling match. It was a competitor's victory wreath. And it's that term, the victor's crown, that Paul uses here to refer to the believers of Philippi that crown that when a victor would receive that crown it was a great sense of fulfillment you gave everything you could to the race that you ran or the effort you put in and to get that crown placed upon your head it, it meant so much to you as such a feeling of enthusiasm and enjoyment yes the reward and, and that sense of internal fulfillment and Paul says that's what you are to me you're my fulfillment to see you do well as a Christian and to walk with the Lord and see you be spiritually fruitful, Paul saying to them, that is my reward. John the Apostle, the aged Apostle, says in his writings, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. And Paul's conveying to them this idea, you know what my reward is in life? My reward is when I see you do well. When I see you do well in the Lord, that, that is the most rewarding thing. That gives me joy. It's like a, a, a crown as a reward over my head. Now, as Paul is saying these things to them here in verse 1, using these purposeful, redundant titles and expressions of love and, and value that they mean to him, no doubt as he's saying these things, expressing such would result, would you agree, in them feeling very blessed. They would feel very special, very loved, very valued and cherished by what Paul was saying. And let me just say by way of application, people don't need, nor do I really think people want, to be flattered in a manipulative way. And typically when people do that to us, you can pick it out right away when someone's just flattering and saying certain things and you can tell that, that they're saying those things but it's just a little manipulative tool to ultimately get what they want. And I don't think anybody enjoys being flattered in a manipulative way. However, there is a time and a God-given reason to express appreciation for people and to articulate with our words and our verbal comments the value that someone means to us and to affirm the value of someone to use our words in a loving way to take time to express our love for another person or to articulate with our words our appreciation of someone in our lives it's such a helpful contribution i tell you to good relationships and if we were to be honest, this is probably an area where we could all grow in just a little bit. Would you agree? It's an area where we could all develop in, in our lives, in this area of just sincerely expressing appreciation for other people in our lives. Of taking the time and the thought and the care and concern to on occasion articulate with our words the value of someone else to us or our appreciation for them in some way. Typically, I will be the first to admit, I and all of us sort of lean towards doing the opposite verbally. Typically, we tend to gravitate towards either saying very little, we never say enough, or we don't say anything at all. 
We, we, just, we never give affirmation. We never compliment. We never take the time to, whether it's to our spouse or, or to our children or, or, this is a shocker, to our parents, if you are a child, that, that does feel wonderful, or, or to express to a co-worker or a co-laborer, maybe somebody that partners with you in what you do and, and they help out. And, and, and typically, many times, we either say very little or we never take the time to actually tell them what they mean to us or to express our love or our admiration or to let them know the value that they really are to us and what they mean and, and contribute into our lives. So often, if it's not saying very little or saying nothing, we tend to then on top of that usually just only say what's what? Critical and hurtful in the moments that they frustrate us. Isn't it amazing? When we enjoy the benefit of a person in our lives, somehow we forget and fail to express appreciation or value, but we never seem to have a problem when something irritates or frustrates us, launching something very critical or, or hurtful. We're kind of good at that. That just kind of comes naturally to us. And God's saying, look, we need to learn how to reverse this in your life. Well, it's just the way I am. Well, listen, I think God would say, look, I didn't save you to keep you the way you are. I saved you to change you. That's not just not my temperament. Well, it's not my temperament either. But it's God's temperament. And the Bible says we have a divine nature that's now been deposited into us through our relationship. The Holy Spirit's entered in your life if you're a Christian. And now the nature of God is what should be exuding from our lives instead. Listen to what Paul told the Ephesian believers in light of our words. Ephesians 4.29, he says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. That's tough. Corrupt means defiling or you know, something that will deteriorate to rotten. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is good for necessary edification to build up that it may impart grace to the hearers. Hey, perhaps this morning it's a good occasion for our own lives to ask the Lord, like we see Paul as a great example here, to help us to make a concerted effort in our lives to speak in a way on occasion where we might impart grace to other people. That we might impart grace into their lives through the way that we speak to them and what we say to them. And there are so many ways in which we can do this creatively. I mean, through a conversation, nothing better than through conversation face-to-face -to, -face to, to just express to somebody your love for them, their, their value to you. Or, or, or through a phone conversation to actually articulate with your words, hey, you know what, I just, I just want to thank you. I really appreciate you know, what you've done or what you do. I just, I, thank you. It's an amazing word. It really matters to people. It really blesses people. Or, or to express to someone in a written form. Here, Paul, in a written form. Whether you, you write a note and, and you leave it for them near their coffee cup husbands, wives, or you know, in, in their, you know, somewhere where they'll find it, in a lunchbox. Uh, and to just a simple note of appreciation and expression of love or their value to you. Or by the way, today we have the tremendous gift of our, our cell phones and our smartphones and to be able to send a text or an email even. I mean, the simplest thing. One of my favorite things about being able to text is being able with just... 12 or 15 or 20 words to just say something of value throughout the day to my wife or to my daughters. 
to impart grace into their lives, to just say something loving to them, something of value to them. You know, they, last evening they, they're going to a homecoming dance, my two oldest daughters, and and to be able to just express to them after I saw them and did the whole picture thing and look real threatening to the boy that was taking them, you know, after, after I did all that, to then send them a text later on and just to reinforce how, how beautiful they looked and, and to just speak things that would bring grace into their lives. Hey, can I encourage you? Such a valuable thing. Ask the Lord for the help in your life. It goes so far in relationships and marriages it goes so far in relationships with parents and children. It goes so far in relationships among the body of Christ and co-workers. It has such a valuable thing and yet we overlook it. This is a real key and a helpful thing in relationships. And I think Paul, the Holy Spirit, sets before us in his words an incredible example of how he expressed such appreciation purposely there in verse 1. They must have felt wonderful to hear that. And after affirming them which in some ways makes a heart way more receptive then. After affirming them, he then charges them in verse 1 to hold their ground spiritually and not waver. He says to them, verse 1, in the midst of the affirmation and expression of love, he then gives the charge there, stand fast in the Lord. That's his charge. Your Bible may say stand firm. It's a call to spiritual faithfulness. A call to spiritual commitment in the Lord. One translator uh, translates that phrase there, stay true to the Lord. Acts chapter 11 verse 23 tells us that the church of Antioch, a man named Barnabas who was known to be an encourager, that was his gift spiritually, that Barnabas showed up at the church of Antioch and it says that he encouraged them all with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. Barnabas came and he visited the church and his, his word of encouragement then was, listen, purpose in your heart, continue with the Lord. Great, I'm so thankful that you've all gotten saved. I'm glad evangelism's happening. But now you purpose in your heart, continue with the Lord. Stay true to the Lord, stand fast, move forward. With purpose of heart, continue to stay devoted and faithful to the Lord. And how we all need to hear and heed that appeal to faithfulness in our own walk and relationship with the Lord for our lives. Because there are always going to be, have you noticed? There are always going to be opposing forces coming against us constantly to try and derail us spiritually. And it comes from many different ways. The world, the flesh, the devil. We live in an ungodly world, a anti-Christian world culture. And so the world is always going to be pushing against us and, and resisting us and doing things to defile our hearts and minds and convictions. And, and that is going to try and derail us spiritually. And then add into that, that you and I have a sinful flesh that always gravitates magnetically towards what's wrong and corrupt and evil and wants to pull us back into the old habits and the wrong behaviors and, and our sinful flesh. they got an internal conflict going on inside of ourselves because our old sinful nature is still there, pushing against us, trying to derail us and to, to guide us and make us deviate spiritually away from the Lord. And then throw on top of that, if that weren't enough, that you have a devil who hates your guts. <laughs> And he's inspiring that sinful flesh and he's encouraging the ungodly 
spirit of this world. And when you throw those things together, you and I find that we are continuously experiencing things trying to hinder us spiritually and derail us in our walk with the Lord. And can I just this morning perhaps encourage you to remember that you are called to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You were enlisted into the Lord's army when he saved you. And perhaps recently the pressure has been tempting you to give up. Perhaps recently it's been very difficult, the temptation and forces trying to get you to give in. Maybe there's been a lot of temptation in your life to compromise or to waver spiritually, to turn away in some sense and give up ground to the enemy. And as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, can I say to you as a fellow soldier on the same battlefield, be courageous, stand your ground, hold your post, and don't give the enemy territory. Don't give him territory. The Bible challenges us continually. 1 Timothy 6, Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, be steadfast, immovable, immovable, hold the line. Like a defensive line right there in the, in the red zone when it's critical and hold the line. Hold the line, be immovable. Don't let the enemy take back territory. Don't let him push you backwards spiritually or push your family backwards spiritually. Hold the line. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, and be strong. And never forget, again, this is a relational thing. I encourage you, as that one translator rendered this verse, stay true to the Lord. Stay committed to Jesus personally. Don't allow yourself to waver from your commitment and relationship to Him and to become unfaithful to Him as the lover of your soul. We really have to determine and purpose to stay true in our devotion and relationship to the Lord Jesus as the lover of our soul. It's a conscious choice. We have to make a commitment to stay faithful to him. It, again, if I can illustrate, it's like a spouse in a marriage. When two people enter into marriage, each spouse in their marriage has to determine by their decisions and their choices and their actions whether or not they are going to be loyal and committed to that relationship or whether they, by their actions and decisions, are going to dishonor the commitment. And the same is true spiritually in our love relationship with the Lord. Solomon demonstrates this more than anyone else in some ways, I think, in his relationship with the Lord. First Kings chapter 8, at the dedication of the temple, Solomon, listen, publicly charges the people at the dedication ceremony, listen to his words. He says, let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord your God. Let your heart be loyal, he says. His heart was loyal, and he says, you now let your hearts be loyal to the Lord your God. But then we read just a few chapters later in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, regarding Solomon, that his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. He had a loyal heart to start. In fact, he was telling other people, you be loyal to the Lord your God. And then it says that his wives, his relationships, those in, the, the things in his life, for him it was related they turned his heart away from the Lord his God. Now Asa, in contrast, we read in 1 Kings 15, 14, that Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. 
I'd much rather have that epitaph at the end of my spiritual life. What is going to be the outcome of our relationship with the Lord? Is our heart going to not be loyal to the Lord or is our heart going to remain loyal to the Lord? Can I encourage you through standing fast, digging in your heels and your devotion and commitment to the Lord that you would remain faithful in your devotion to the love of your soul? Don't let anything interfere with your commitment to Jesus. And don't let anyone, anyone, don't let anyone interfere, interrupt your devotion and commitment to the Lord. And let me just say together with that, if this morning you have been unfaithful to Jesus, and we've all known that, we've all taken our little tours of backsliding, we've all stepped away from the Lord and turned away from Him in our hearts and actions and poor choices, and if for whatever reason you've been unfaithful to the Lord, please hear me this morning, He loves you. And he wants to love on you and forgive you and and restore you if you just return to him. You read your Bible carefully and take notice how many times God repeatedly says in his unconditional love these three words, return to me. And I charge us, let's be faithful to the Lord, but if you haven't been or you're struggling with condemnation or guilt because you have been unloyal to the Lord, you have been unfaithful to Him and you've wavered, listen, all God's saying to you this morning is, just return to me. Return to me. I'll love you, forgive you, and restore you. Well, Paul goes on, verse 2, to then say, I implore Eodia and I implore Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with my fellow workers, excuse me, Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So here's Paul pleading now, Lotus, for these two godly women to resolve their differences, to work out the issues because of what? Again, their relationship in the Lord as two sisters in Christ. Now, we don't have an explanation here of the details regarding what the issue was at hand. We're simply not told. We can guess and speculate from our own personal experiences. However, whatever the conflict was and the fruit of this issue and conflict between these two godly women, apparently it became so detrimental in the local church there in Philippi that Paul actually has to openly identify them by name in this entire situation. Remember, please, if you would, that this letter that we're reading and studying together would have been a letter, as all of them were, that were read publicly before the entire congregation. Imagine how awkward that was for Iori and Syntyche. (laughs) This is good stuff. You know, I want to know him. The power of his resurrection is for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And then all of a sudden, boing, Paul just puts it right out as they're reading the letter and how they must have kind of just felt really cut to the heart. Just cut to the heart as Paul does this. Now, now let me begin by reminding us, and I don't want you to overlook and indicating, because I think there's application and lesson in it, that these women were mature Christian women. The text clearly indicates and proves that to us. It says, verse 2, that they were in the Lord In verse 3 there, Paul includes these women with a group of others, a companion, Clement, the rest of his fellow workers. And regarding the women and all that group he mentions, he says, all of whose names are in, notice, the book of life. 
Now that term, the book of life, is a phrase used in both the Old Testament and New Testament to make reference to a record or list that God possesses of those people whose names as individuals are registered as those who will indeed inherit and enter into heaven. Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Jesus speaking to his disciples as they returned from their missionary journey and they were rejoicing in all the good fruit of their missions trip and Jesus said to them, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So this term, the book of life, you find it in Daniel 12, you find it in Revelation 3, in chapter 17, verse 8, in chapter 20, chapter 21, verse 27. It's a term that shows up repeatedly. Listen to what Revelation 20 says in relation to the book of life. Revelation 20 says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it and the dead standing before God. And the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Again, please take notice. God keeps very accurate records. The question to ask yourself this morning soberly and honestly as an individual is, is your name in the book of life? Whether you are 12 or 22 or 52 or 82 and about ready to see if your reservation has been secured, I would ask you this morning, is your name in the book of life? Not as your family's last name, because God doesn't go by that. Oh, the whole Montemura party's in there. No, no. Is your name, because the Bible says any one individual whose name was not found in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire of separation. Again, if we can illustrate, just like a high-class restaurant, you have to make your reservation in a high-class restaurant. Well, I don't visit them that often. I'm, I'm being theoretical here. <laughs> uh, I'm told, I guess. <laughs> you get the illustration. You have to make your reservation to have access. Same is true spiritually. Before we die and breathe our last breath or before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we don't know what's going to come first, we need to make our reservation spiritually to make sure our name is in the book of life or we will not be granted access into eternal life with God. Instead, we will be banished and cast into the lake of fire because we did not have our name in the book of life. And the Bible is very clear. That only those who are saved by Jesus Christ through their faith in him, who have personally accepted Jesus Christ as their own savior through their own faith and belief, only those who have embraced and know Jesus personally themselves will be those whose names are in the book of life. And let me just say by way of encouragement and caution this morning, there are no special exceptions when you show up at the doorway of heaven in the presence of God. Unlike maybe a high-class restaurant that if you're a you know, high-power roller, maybe you can like pull out a hundo or something and, hey, here's my $100 bill. Do I have a table? That ain't going to work in heaven because the Bible tells us that Jesus said, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? The idea is nothing. Nothing. Because the only price that's accepted is the price of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. 
And we have to accept something to have our reservation in heaven. You have to accept Jesus Christ. You have to embrace him as your own personal Savior and Lord. And that's an important thing. The Bible says when we do that, 1 Peter 1, then our reservation is secure in our inheritance in heaven. And if not, today is the time, today, to make your reservation, to make certain and sure of that. Notice also Yodi and Syntyche, they weren't just Christians. Apparently they helped serve to advance the gospel work together with Paul. Verse 3, he says, these women are those who labored with me in the gospel. So they weren't just Christians. They were prominent Christian workers in that local church there. Acts 16 tells us that when Paul planted the church of Philippi, remember he planted the church of Philippi by going into that area. And the first thing he did was he went and visited a women's prayer group. And one woman, Lydia, her heart was touched by the Lord. And that was the inception of the church plant in Philippi. Apparently, these two women were very instrumental in working alongside Paul the Apostle and sharing the gospel. They labored in gospel work together with Paul, and he affirms that he appreciated their contributions greatly. And oftentimes, again, by way of application, I found that much of the labor and the work that gets done in gospel ministry, many a times it gets performed by faithful women. Women who just tend to have a heart for the Lord, they have a sensitivity to people. Women are faithful intercessors, I have found. Women are willing to take on tasks and do practical things and, and care for people. And though God has called men to, to provide leadership, so often the labors that get done, many times I find, get addressed and often get performed by women in the body of Christ. And I deeply appreciate the contributions that women provide the ministry. The point with these two women is not only were they believers, they were known, Paul says, as prominent faithful servants in the church who at one time were very productive for the Lord. They were fruitful Christians and they were serving and doing things to contribute to the works of God and spiritual ministry. But now notice some issue has arose which has caused them to go from being productive to counterproductive. Some undealt with issue has caused them not just to be counterproductive, but I guess you even could say somewhat destructive to the life of the church. Their disagreement and the results of it requires Paul, as I said earlier, to have to address it openly and publicly in front of the entire congregation now. Again, perhaps it was a petty dispute in their friendship that just got out of control. Somebody's feelings were, and it's amazing how petty disputes can become explosive long-term wars between people. Just a, a hurt feeling or an offended situation where it's never talked about and resolved. Maybe it was some disagreement in regards to church ministry or the direction of the church there, a decision or a way to do things among you know, the children's ministry or the ushers or, or the worship ministry and some disagreement of how things should or shouldn't be done. Whatever it was, it was never resolved and it escalated and it festered and it became out of control in such a way that it must have been it must have been threatening the entire health of the church at Philippi because I do not believe that Paul the apostle would have shamed two people publicly for just having a little argument. That's not the heart of God and I know that wasn't the heart of Paul. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. I don't think he would have just shamed them publicly for having a little argument or disagreement. This was something that became a very inflamed and, and sort of out of control matter and division and disunity among people can be a very dangerous and destructive force among an assembly. It can infect and affect many lives. 
Disunity and division can derail entire church families. Maybe some of you here this morning have experienced that. It can derail a whole congregation. It can drive people in all different directions. And when the primary individual is responsible for causing such are not addressing it and, and, and are not being responsive and repentant, there is a time where severe and more open measures must be taken to hold people to account, to implore and to beseech for there to be genuine repentance and resolution for the sake of the flock as a whole. And this is what Paul is doing here. Notice he's not doing it in a heavy-handed way. He's not exerting his apostolistic authority. Take notice. He's strongly appealing love. He says, I implore you. He's not saying, I command you as the apostle Paul. He, he's imploring them in love. He's begging them. He's saying, I implore you, be of the same mind, he says there in verse 2. The idea is, he's saying, look, because of your relationship with the Lord, he's saying, come on, work it out. Your sisters. He's saying, figure out, do what you got to do to endeavor to resolve this thing. Because they had a relationship with the Lord, Paul knew, look, you're in connection with the Lord. You have the love of God available in your heart. You know how to forgive you know how to let go of things. They have the ability to agree to disagree and to end the dispute. He says, look, you're Christian. Since you can agree to be of the same mind on the major things, can't you just let the minor things go once for all and just let the thing be resolved and figure out how to get along? He's saying it's not worth disrupting an entire assembly over. Now, let me say a thing or two before we move on from this. What a reminder that even among the spiritual family of God, there are going to be occasions, even among the spiritual family, where disagreements and interpersonal issues arise. And I say to you this morning, I believe it is immaturity and false spirituality for a person to believe that such things will never arise. This is the church. I should never get my feelings hurt in the church. Look, come hang out at my house for about six minutes with a family of five people who are all different by design and have sinful natures. And, and, and people get their feelings hurt. People misunderstand one another. People say things and have to say sorry. And, and people irritate one another. And, 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 and this is just, right, it's family life. It's family life. And the church is a family. And to think that the presence of these things won't exist in the church is really a very naive and immature and false spiritual perception. Things happen. The key is, is as Christians and as a family of God, we don't have the absence of conflict. We have the understanding and the ability to resolve conflict. That's what the world doesn't know how. That's why when we understand these things happen and recognizing it's a natural part of family life, it allows us not to overreact in a wrong and negative way. Oh, I got my feelings are here, so I'm going to run somewhere else. Well, then you just start the next fight in that place. Instead, the Bible says, no, look, learn. Mature, grow up, learn how, to, learn how to interact. Learn how to live in a family. Learn how to say I'm sorry and forgive and let things go and be offended and not make a bigger issue out of them what it means. It's family life. It was existing in the early church and there does come a time in connection to that, I believe, when there comes a time when you have to recognize sometimes that other things are more important than being right. 
And that's what Paul's trying to remind. Look, there are other things, ladies, he's saying, Syntyche, there are other things that are more important than just being right. Like being right with God. Like being right with other people. And for you and I, the Bible implores and exhorts us in many different places to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, he says, look, why don't you rather let yourself be wronged? Why don't you, he says, let yourselves be cheated? Sometimes, look, whatever, okay, I don't don't have to be right. There's something more important than just being right. It's being right with God, being right with one another. Hebrews 12 says, Pursue peace with all people, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many are defiled. See, undealt with issues and disputes between two people can become cancers and spread to many other people and really cause infection and destroy churches and families and organizations and businesses. Take notice as well in verse 3 what Paul also does. He challenges them to resolve their issue, but then he also says, verse 3, I urge you, he says, to help these women. So notice Paul also makes a request for someone to help mediate as a peacemaker to work toward a resolution. I like this because sometimes people get to a place in sort of a stalemate in a relational conflict where they need somebody to help mediate. If you're a parent, you know that. People in relationships, they have challenges and conflicts and situations and issues arise and sometimes we need to be willing to offer to get involved to help mediate a resolution maybe for some one or, or two individuals or a, maybe a married couple or, or two brothers in the Lord or two sisters in the Lord or, or, or two fellow workers in an organization. And sometimes there's just a need for a little outside perspective and counsel. And I think it's part of loving people and caring and esteeming the value of relationships, not to say, man, they, phew, what they got going on? I'll pray for them. But if there's a right way and time and place, I'm not saying we should always get involved in other people's business. There's wisdom. But there is a time. Jesus said, blessed are what? The peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Interesting. Why? What's a peacemaker? Someone who helps with reconciliation, helps reconcile. That's what a peacemaker does. What is God? He is a God of reconciliation. So as his sons and daughters, we should reflect the nature of our father. We should be people who are reconcilers. We should be those at times who aren't afraid to step into the ring. And you know what I found? Sometimes when you step into a ring, whether it be with a couple or two individuals, you step into the ring because you can tell a little help's needed or they ask for help and you step into the ring and you might take a pop or two yourself. Forewarning. But that's worth it. If you can be used to help mediate and give counsel and perspective, and perhaps Jesus, I don't know, maybe this morning, it's a word of the Lord for one of you. Maybe this morning Jesus is calling you and wants to use one of you to mediate in some conflict to help bring resolution. To pray and and to offer or to get involved in some way to help mediate as Paul asked them to. Well, notice he turns next in verse 4 to give an exhortation for them to find fulfillment in the Lord. He says, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So he exhorts them here to have a lifestyle of continuous celebration in their personal relationship with the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in your relationship with the Lord. The term rejoice means an attitude of, or an action of celebration. It also means to be full of joy. 
And we know joy is just another term for delight and pleasure and enjoyment and gladness. And this is one of the blessed gifts and I think privileges of the Christian experience. Being able to experience internal joy because of our relationship with the Lord. Sometimes life's experiences, circumstances, the situations we go through in this difficult world, it makes it really hard to be happy, right? It makes it tough at times to be happy and certainly to be happy all the time. But please note the text. Paul does not tell Christians to be happy. He doesn't tell them to be happy. He says you be joyful in the Lord. Remember, joy is not an emotion. Happiness is something that what? It's a feeling and emotion that comes and goes with circumstances. You get a raise at work. Oh, yeah. And you're so happy. And you're, oh, praise the Lord, hallelujah, I got a raise. I can't wait to come up. You call your wife to tell her, hey, honey, I got a raise. I got a raise. Finally, I got a raise. And she says, good, because the refrigerator just died. Oh, there goes my happiness. The circumstance changed it. It's a feeling. It's, it comes and goes with circumstances. Joy is an experience internally that is a byproduct of a spiritual experience with God. It's something totally different. Joy is an internal experience of delight and pleasure and glad fulfillment because of a spiritual experience with God. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And surely there are many circumstances in which a Christian cannot be happy about. But God's not asking us to be unrealistic here. God's not asking us to, to be unreasonable or act and pretend always super spiritual. Oh, I rejoice in the Lord. Oh, my car broke down. Praise the Lord. God's not asking us to be unrealistic. But what God is showing us is, look, life is hard. It can be frustrating. There are going to be times when you are stressed and it's discouraging and you're full of sorrow. But no matter what we experience, the blessed gift of the Christian is, unlike the world, we have something, shall I say, someone as well, to always still rejoice in. Because life may be really hard. But I have a God who will help me in the hard time. And everything may be falling apart and, and, and circumstances have changed, but God will never change in who he is in my life. And I may be full of sorrow and it may be a bitter, dissatisfying time, but I can still find satisfaction and fulfillment and pleasure and joy through a relationship with the Lord, even though I'm utterly dissatisfied with everything in my life. Paul even said in 2 Corinthians 6.10, he spoke of being sorrowful yet rejoicing. Sorrowful but yet rejoicing. Weeping, grieving, but being able still through relationship with God to just rejoice in the Lord because he's there with us in the valley with the tears, helping us, walking us through it. How, how does that work out in our lives? How does this practically work out? Paul says rejoice in the Lord and as if we're going to forget. He says again, I say rejoice. As if, hey, don't let that go out one ear and, in one ear and out the other. But how does that play out in our lives? I'll tell you how. By regularly and repeatedly committing to spending time in the presence of God and continuously and repeatedly spending times of worship with God. Privately 
and publicly together with God's people because it is in the presence of the Lord celebrating the Lord for who he is. Lord, I'm sorrowful, but who you are. Lord, I'm, I'm struggling and I'm, I'm frustrated, but Lord, what you're still able to do. And it says we worship and spend time with the Lord. The Bible says 16, Psalm 1611, in his presence is fullness of joy. Acts 2.28, you will make me full of joy in your presence. See, I don't know how this works, how it plays out, but I can tell you by first-hand experience as a Christian, there's a marvelous, miraculous thing that happens when life can really stink or it can be really hard or you can be in the worst hour of your life and yet you start just worshiping the Lord. You flip on a praise and worship tune and you just put your head down on your speaker boom box and you just start worshiping the Lord how the joy of the Spirit of God can flood your soul you may still be grieving you may still be stressed but the joy of the Lord becomes your strength or as you come together with God's people and you're in the presence of the Lord you can go through really hard, but yet there's an internal experience oh joy I got something to rejoice in even though I have nothing else to really celebrate it out in the world. And it's a wonderful thing. And Paul says it's a blessed privilege and a responsibility of the Christian. Verse 5, he then says, And let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. So notice Paul says our relationship with the Lord should affect also how we relate to others in our interaction. Let your gentleness, he says, be made known to all. That word gentleness there, literally when you look at it, refers to the opposite of a spirit of contention. Some translators translated a sweet reasonableness or a forbearing spirit. The term that's used there speaks of a temperament can, that can defer to another's way without insisting on having its own rights be honored. J.B. Phillips translates this, have a reputation for being reasonable. Interesting. Have a reputation for being reasonable. The Bible says, let your gentleness, you're having a reasonable disposition, being a reasonable, gentle person, let that be what you're known for as a Christian. Here's what God's saying. As Christians, I and you should be known as someone who, listen, is easy to interact with. That we're somebody that's just really easy to deal with. That we are not known as someone who is a very difficult person in our personality that's just unreasonable and always difficult to deal with because we're a little you know, harsh or, or we're pushy or forceful. We're just, it's always an issue when, when they have to talk to you and, and we always inflame a situation because of our personality. God says, no, I want you to be known for being, I want you to be known as somebody who's very reasonable. Hey, this guy's a reasonable guy. I like dealing with this guy. Would you agree there are people in our lives, I think we would all admit, there are some people that we know that we dread interacting with. We dread dealing with them because they are just such a difficult person to deal with. And you just, you almost, oh, I have to have a conversation with him again. He's so difficult. He creates such agita. Every time I talk to him, he just gets me all worked. And then there are other people you go, oh, I, I'll talk to him. He's, he's a great guy to deal with. God's saying, be that kind of person. Let your gentleness. Oh, well, I don't, I'm not really a gentle person. I just, again, I, just, I don't have that. Well, listen, Jesus is. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Paul talks about the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Here's my point. If you don't have gentleness, Jesus does in his nature, and you need to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, 
would you by your spirit at work in me you live in me as I fellowship with you would, would you pour into my disposition more gentleness that I could be a more reasonable easy person to interact with and deal with again Jesus was firm Jesus wasn't weak he was firm but he was gentle Abraham Lincoln they say was a man of velvet steel I like that we can be firm and still be very gentle, very reasonable, easy to interact with, to be known for that. And Paul says, do all these things. Why? Because the Lord is at hand, he says. Now, he could mean because the Lord's present. And because the Lord's present, he says, hey, the Lord's present. Honor him. He sees everything you're doing. So we don't want to be you know, uh, in, in disputes and doing things and treating people wrong when the presence of the Lord is seeing everything. He says, no, the Lord's at hand. He's present with us. So we should act this way and, and conduct ourselves because we know the presence of the Lord's with us. He also could be indicating the Lord is at hand in the sense of the Lord is coming soon. Do all these things, live this way, because the Lord is at hand, he's nearby, and the idea is, is I don't want the Lord to return and myself be acting inappropriately when he arrives, and then I'm ashamed. And this is the idea here. Since the presence of the Lord's Spirit is in our midst and the return of the Lord Jesus is very close at hand, Paul is saying, then let us give proper value to relationships over and before all other things. Let us give proper value to the dedication of our relationship with the Lord vertically and let us give proper value to our investment of our relationship with other people.